welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's summit meeting tomorrow in Geneva with Vladimir Putin, who Biden characterized today as a worthy adversary, and explore the possibility of the two leaders dealing with a flashpoint between Russia and Ukraine over the Donbass, which could lead to a wider confrontation between Russia and NATO. Anatole Levin, a senior research fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, joins us to discuss his new paper at the Quincy Institute, Ending the Threat of War in Ukraine, a Negotiated Solution to the Donbass Conflict and the Crimea Dispute, and whether Biden is using the issue of corruption in Ukraine as an excuse to deny Ukraine entry into NATO, which would provoke a furious response from Russia. With Russia having gone on full nuclear alert recently, clearly there is a need for both sides with the world's largest nuclear arsenals to negotiate an agreement to lessen the possibility of nuclear war by accident or design. Then, with the United States having passed the threshold of 600,000 deaths from the COVID pandemic, we'll speak with Andrew Neumer an epidemiologist and professor of population health and disease prevention at the University of California, Irvine. He joins us to discuss how vaccines have reduced the daily death rate from 3,000 per day in January to about 375 per day now, and the serious nature of the Delta variant, as well as the long-term complications from COVID that has about a quarter of those infected having lasting side effects. Then finally, we'll assess the White House's first national strategy to fight domestic terrorism unveiled today by the National Security Council, which goes to length to be bipartisan in characterizing the administration's approach to combating domestic terrorism as, quote, ideologically neutral, even though white nationalists, militias and neo-Nazis pose the greatest danger. David Shanzer, the director of the Triangle Center on Terrorism and Homeland Security at the School of Public Policy at Duke University, who was the Democratic Staff Director for the House of Representatives Committee on Homeland Security, joins us to discuss proposals to deal with disinformation, misinformation and conspiracy theories in a social media environment that nourishes domestic terrorism. And joining us now is Anatole Levin, who is a Senior Research Fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He was formerly a professor at Georgetown University in Qatar and a journalist covering South Asia and the former Soviet Union for the Financial Times, the BBC and the Times of London. And he has a new paper at the Quincy Institute, Ending the Threat of War in Ukraine, a Negotiated Solution to Donbass Conflict and the Crimea Dispute. Welcome to Background Briefing. Anatole Levin. Hello. Well, thanks for joining us. And do you think in any way that Biden and Putin will be talking about this idea of yours or something similar in terms of ending the sort of low-intensity war on the eastern border of Ukraine between Russia and Ukraine? Well, Biden will certainly raise the, the conflict. I mean, whether he will go further than simply, you know, blaming the Russians and emphasizing to Putin that he must not step up military action, I don't know. Um, Putin, I think, will probably um, raise the issue of, uh, of autonomy for the Donbass because uh, Russia, you know, was a participant in the, in the agreement on that, the Minsk Agreement of 2015, um, which America endorsed under President Obama but has not actually done anything to try to bring into effect. 
Um, so the conflict will come up. I don't honestly, uh, you know, expect uh, any great progress to, to be made. But on the other hand, you know, if progress is ever to be made, it's, you know, it's necessary to get to get the facts and to get the right ideas out there. But do you think Putin has an incentive to, to end that, that low-intensity war? Because he's destabilizing Ukraine on the cheap, isn't he? Well, but the, the, the point is, it's, it's actually the Ukrainians who, who are mainly responsible for blocking the settlement. Um, and that is because they think that an autonomous Donbass within Ukraine um, would be a big obstacle to Ukraine joining NATO and the European Union which it would, by the way, um, the, the Ukrainians have set conditions um, for implementing the settlement, which are simply impossible. It basically involves uh, the separatists surrendering, reincorporating themselves in Ukraine um, with no, no real guarantees of autonomy at all. Um, I mean, the incentive to Putin, of course, would be the lifting of, of sanctions. Um, that's why also it would need to be linked probably to the the Crimean dispute, uh, the lifting of sanctions and the uh, restoration of a degree of um, diplomatic freedom of maneuver in the world because the, the way in which Russia is being forced closer and closer to China uh, is not something which you know, a lot of the Russian establishment is entirely happy about, actually. They, they'd rather have some degree of choice in the matter. But is there a solution to Crimea? I mean, initially, it would seem that, in many ways, the Russian military didn't want to lose those naval bases. It should have been clear that Russia would retaliate in some way. But now that they have Crimea, why would they give it up? Or under what conditions would they oh. give it up? That they will never give it up. Exactly. <laughs> um, they made it clear, right? No, no but... Yeah, but uh, I don't know if you saw what um, Secretary of State Blinken said about the uh, Israeli occupation of the Golan Heights recently, um, a couple of days ago. He, he said that irrespective of, you know, international law, the fact is that Israel controls the Golan Heights and presumably will continue to do so forever, as far as I can see. I mean, the point is, Crimea is not returning to, to Ukraine. That's simply not going to happen. Um, the, you know, if this is to... You know, not, not to remain a permanent running sore, and by the way, a permanent source of destabilization within Ukraine, uh, then we have to find uh, an international solution which will both, you know, involve a quid pro quo, as international solutions do, um, and uh, also, you know, restore a basic measure of international legality. Well, I mean, the, the, the the only course for that is basically to do an exchange. Uh, we recognize the independence of Crimea after a properly supervised referendum, supervised by the United Nations, and Russia recognizes the, um, the independence of Kosovo, uh, thereby opening the way for Kosovo to, to join the United Nations and gain full international legitimacy. Um, as far as I can say, that, see, that is the only way that this um, conflict will ever be result well not conflict it's only a dispute but uh because otherwise you know as long as it remains open um the the ukrainians uh you know will bring various forms of pressure to bear on crimea the biggest of which is the blockade of water supplies um and uh well you know that raises the permanent possibility that russia will lose its temper and there'll be a new war which nobody wants by the way but what about the notion of Russia crossing a line in terms of 
invading another country, does the West just sort of give up on that red line? I mean, it's uh, not going anywhere anyway. Can you remind, no, but can you remind me, um, uh, please, uh, over the past um, 20 years, which country has invaded most other countries or taken military action <laughs> against them in the world? <laughs> you, you know, I mean, the, the, the rest of the world... You got me there, Anatole. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know... <laughs> um, but that's not to say the, that they're not making a big deal out of it. I'm saying that this is the, the moral stand, if you will. It may be hypocritical, but that's the moral stand that the West is taking, and, I, and I'm wondering what would yeah, move but, them but to give that up. But, well, you know, look, I'm not, you know, I'm not naively optimistic about this, but forgive me, a, mor a hypocritical stand, by definition, is not a moral stand. Hypocrisy is not morality. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if uh, a rules-based order um, in which the United States re repeatedly breaks the rules that it set is not a rules-based order, as far as the rest of the world is concerned. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the thing is that in, in reality... Uh, you have to make compromises with other countries, or you have to be in a position simply to steamroller them. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> Russia has proved that it is not to be steamrollered on these issues. And again, I'm speaking with Anatole Lieben, who's a senior research fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He was formerly a professor at Georgetown University in Qatar and a journalist covering South Asia and the former Soviet Union for the Financial Times, the BBC and the Times of London. And he has a new paper at the Quincy Institute, Ending the Threat of War in Ukraine, a Negotiated Solution to Donbass Conflict and the Crimea Dispute. Now... President Biden at the NATO summit said that Ukraine has to clean up its corruption before it's admitted into NATO. It's my understanding that if Ukraine isn't admitted into NATO, that's, that is a huge red line as far as Putin's concerned. Is Biden using corruption as an excuse? Does NATO really want to have Ukraine join and suffer the consequences of an enraged Russia? Yeah. Well, I mean, Ukraine cannot join uh, right. as long as the, um, the, the, this conflict remains open and as long as the Crimean dispute remains open. You know, NATO actually has a rule about not including countries with territorial disputes for, for the obvious reason that, you know, NATO is a, a defensive organization. Um, it, you know, it, it fights if one of its members are, are attacked. I mean, from the very beginning, NATO was, was not, you know, going to bring in or endorse countries with, you know, potentially open conflicts with their, their neighbours. You know, this is, a, of course, a major obstacle to um, bringing parts of the Balkans into, uh, into NATO. I mean, the point is, NATO membership is not going to happen anyway. Uh, but yes, I think um, Biden, you know, Zelen President Zelensky of Ukraine yesterday tried to essentially trap Biden into an offer of um, NATO membership. And uh, yeah, I mean, Biden essentially wriggled out of it, in part by by blaming Ukrainian corruption. But, I mean, by the way, um, Ukraine is very corrupt, and um, as is Russia, of course. Uh, and, um, you know, we've seen in the expansion, uh, well, above all of the European Union to Eastern Europe, uh, you, you know, the, the Bulgarians and Romanians were included long before they should have been with extremely corrupt and unstable political systems. And, of course, the Ukraine, uh, the um, 
Poles and the Hungarians were admitted with lower levels of corruption, but they, of course, have turned in a very national chauvinist and, you know, illiberal quasi-authoritarian direction, which is also a huge embarrassment for the European Union. You know, th there is a very big opinion in Europe, and uh, e EU officials, you know, are, are not very shy about admitting this, you know, off the record, uh, that the European Union has reached the limit of its expansion. And remember that, you know, NATO and European Union always uh, expanded in tandem so that, you know, NATO membership was backed up by economic prosperity and stability. So if the EU has reached you know, an end of expansion, then I think probably NATO has as well. But how does NATO and the EU navigate this relationship with Russia? Because what about the aspirations of people in Ukraine and, and, and for that matter, Belarus and other countries where they want, you know, basic freedoms and rule of law? So do you give up on that because you don't want to push Russia too far? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things are worth remembering there. The first is that, you know, in opinion polls before the revolution of 2014, consistently majorities of more than two-thirds of Ukrainians in every poll said that they did not want to join NATO because they were afraid, you know, they wanted close relations with Russia still, and they were afraid of, you know, this leading to conflict, which it has. Now, the EU is different. They do want to join the European Union because, of course, of all the economic benefits that it brings. But, you, you know, they also want to join the EU. They don't want to be in an EU waiting room for forever, like the, the Turks. Um, but the other point to be made is, you know, throughout the Cold War, Finland and Austria uh, developed as fully-fledged Western democracies, even though by, you know, the treaties at the end of the Second World War, they were, they had to be neutral. They had, you know, they, they could not join the, e the EU and NATO, um, but they became, you know, completely normal developed Western democracies because that was their tradition, uh, or in the case of Austria, they were able to, you know, to, to create a new democracy. I mean, the, the, the point is, you know, if the Ukrainian, you know, if Ukrainian society and political society and the elites do not have it in them uh, to, you know, move towards Western standards, then, um, you know, the offer of NATO and EU membership is, is not in the end going to help them. But something seems to have happened, though, in terms of just, just to broadening it out a little bit, Anatole, to talk about why Biden is doing this in the first place. There was some criticism from both the left and the right. Why is he rewarding Putin? The U.S. took sanctions off this Stasi guy who's the head of Nord Stream 2, the pipeline that was 90-plus percent built. And mm -hmm. that was also seen as a major gift to Putin and a slap in the face to the Ukrainians who were very upset about it. So what's going on behind the scenes here? Some of the rumors I've heard from former KGB people who are not by definition particularly trustworthy, suggesting <laughs> that maybe Putin is, is being pressured from the right because it's still hard to understand what the deployment of those massive troop deployments on the borders were about and then they withdrew and left their equipment behind but also during that period of tension russia went on full nuclear alert and my understanding from talking to former security people in washington they said that basically biden realized the things are just getting out of hand and we just got to sit down with this guy and and work something out is 
What, what's your sense on those two questions? One is Putin being challenged from the right by Nikolai Petrushev and other more nationalistic and hawkish people, or is there a reason that Biden decided to have this meeting is because things were getting out of hand? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, the North Stream concession uh, is, is more of a concession to Germany. Mm -hmm. You know, Germany has put billions into this. Germany has rejected repeatedly U.S. pressure to stop Nord Stream. Now it's virtually a done deal. You know, the, the, uh, I mean, barring something approaching war with Russia, Germany can't pull, pull out of this. It would mean, you know, c colossal economic um, losses to Germany. And since, you know, Biden is very anxious for German support, you know, as part of his whole plan to build up, you know, a block of democracies in the world against China, um, you know, he, he needed to reduce tension with Germany over this issue. I mean, th this is just absolutely standard realistic diplomacy. I mean, the U.S. was not going to win over North Stream anyway. So, you know, <laughs> best to quietly shelve the thing. Um, now, uh, on Putin being influenced from the right, I, I, I don't see that at all. Um, and the, the Russian deployment vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine was, I mean, as seen from Russia, uh, a response to what they at least saw as a Ukrainian build-up and escalation uh, of um, forces. Uh, and this, it, was, it was a warning to the Ukrainians not, you know, not, not to attack what are, in effect, Russian positions in the Donbass. And, of course, uh, going on nuclear alert um, was a, a, a warning to, to the West um, that if war had, had happened, which, of course, it didn't, um, that NATO could, could not intervene because that would risk nu nuclear annihilation. I mean, there's, there's, you know, it's, it's all perfectly... There's, there's nothing mysterious about these Russian actions, nor is it particularly to do with you know, factions in Moscow. Um, the, the Russian foreign and security elites are, are uh, you know, very united by now on all of this. Um, but, uh, I mean, as far as, you know, Biden going, going to see Putin, it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's the same reason that, that U.S. leaders met Soviet leaders during the, the Cold War. It's the same reason that they, you know, that Biden met Xi Jinping. Um, you know, there, there are dangerous tensions involved. You know, there is always the ultimate nightmare, however unlikely, you know, of a nuclear catastrophe. Or an um, accident. And there are... Or an accident. But also, um, there are some... You know, issues where, you know, a measure of real progress could be made. Um, one is managing Afghanistan after the U.S. withdrawal, where U.S. and Russian interests are basically the same. Uh, another is nuclear arms reductions, where, you know, both countries have far more missiles than, you know, than they need. You know, China has demonstrated you can have an entirely credible deterrent at a, you know, fraction of the, the cost and numbers. Um, and then there are other issues where they needed to work out certain red lines, you know, make clear what each side uh, would uh, would not accept, you know, um, so that the other side had fair warning. And in the case of America, of course, it is uh, its interference in the American political process. It is cyber sabotage um, as opposed to espionage. And as far as Russia is concerned, it's it's if um, I mean, amongst other things, it's if uh, Ukrainian forces actually launch a, a full-scale offensive in the Donbass, uh, or of course. Um, uh, the West tries to uh, overthrow the government of Lukashenko, at least it, with NATO membership 
and EU membership in prospect. I mean, on those two issues, Russia will fight if necessary. Um, well, but as a, as a weakened Lukashenko is just an opportunity for Putin. I mean, he's got an airbase now that he yeah. was wanting for some time, and now because Lukashenko needs Putin's help, he's a weakened guy. I mean, the, the Belarusian people clearly were furious about that uh, well, election. Well, you know, the, 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 you know, some of the Belarusian people are, you need, um, Well, hundreds of thousands yes, I mean, of them. Well, no, a lot of yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, d don't forget, I mean, Lukashenko, you know, would not still be here after all these years if he, if he didn't also have a real measure of support. It may, you know, probably a minority by now, but still. But on the, you know, on Lukashenko being weakened, I, I, I mean, no. Uh, if, if, if Lukashenko falls to, to the kind of revolution that occurred in Ukraine in 2014, I mean, Russia will be faced with the most appalling dilemma. Um, of, you know, backing off and allowing, you know, I mean, seeing from no. Russian history, the main invasion route to Moscow, you know, being again in the hands of potential enemies. I know that's paranoid, but still. No. Um, or to actually intervene and occupy Belarus, you know, with all the hideous complications that that would lead to and the costs and the, you know, and the new no. crisis with the West. Um, no, of course, I mean, Putin is trying to gain certain Russian advantages, but, uh, uh, and Putin, you're right, I mean, Putin ha has no personal love for Lukashenko, because Lukashenko has defied Russian wishes on occasions, but the, the Russian, not just Putin, the Russian establishment cannot allow Belarus to, to move, you know, towards NATO membership, it, it just will not. Uh, it will do, you know, whatever is necessary to sure. stop that. They've, you know, they've, they've said that. So that's, you know, so Putin, I'm sure, is going to say that to Biden. You know, look, you have been warned. Though I should say, Russia said that about Ukraine again and again. You know, we will not allow, right. uh, n n you know, Ukraine to join NATO and to expel the Russian Navy from Sevastopol. You know, we will fight to prevent right. that. And that's exactly they what did. happened. Right. So, but yeah. just in closing, uh, Anatol. As far as I know, the Belarusian people, as much as they, a lot of them rose up against Lukashenko for, for stealing the last election, they still have good relations with Russia and feel fraternity with Russia. Whereas now, the, the biggest consequence of the confrontation between Russia and Ukraine is that the Ukrainian people never hated the Russians, but now they do. So. As far as I know, Belarusians don't hate the Russians, but the Ukrainians do, and that doesn't seem like a helpful thing. Well, it depends which ones. I mean, Western right. Ukrainians always detested the Russians, <laughs> and, you know, um, and they were the backbone of the nationalist movement. I mean, you're right, opinion moved against Russia right. uh, as a result of 2014, but then from Russia's point of view, you know, they, they had seen you know, repeated majorities in elections, I mean, small ones, for pro-Russian positions. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the entire Ukrainian political order, uh, order was overthrown, you know, by a partially armed revolution uh, in, uh, in, in, in 2014. And Ukraine became committed, as I say, to NATO membership, which no majority of Ukrainians had ever voted for. So, you know, I mean, the point is, Russia... You know, no, I mean, the, the Russians do worry deeply, I and mean, that's why they don't want to occupy Belarus, you know, about turning the Belarusians against them. But, you know, the, the Russians, once again, I mean, they may be in part paranoid about this, are convinced that, you know, the, the, the West would do any, you know, would 
really try to take Belarus into Western alliances, and they won't permit that. Well, I'm grateful for your time, Anatole, and um, let's stay in touch. And your mm-hmm. new studies available, I take it, ending the threat of war in Ukraine and negotiated solution oh. to Donbass and the Crimean dispute at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, right? That's right. And I will also send you, uh, I have a, a, an updated edition of a new book coming out in September on climate change and the nation state. So I'll send you the, the details send of that Send me the as details well. and we'll, we'll talk to you then. That'll be lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Anatole Levin, who's a senior research fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He was formerly a professor at Georgetown University in Qatar and a journalist covering South Asia and the former Soviet Union for the Financial Times, the BBC and the Times of London. And he has a new paper at the Quincy Institute ending the threat of war in Ukraine and negotiated solution to Donbass conflict and the Crimean dispute. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing how the United States passed the threshold of 600,000 deaths from the COVID pandemic. Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Andrew Neumer, who's an epidemiologist and professor of population health and disease prevention at the University of California, Irvine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Neumer. Glad to be back. Well, thanks for joining us. And the COVID-19 pandemic, the first death was about 15 months ago. And according to the Johns Hopkins University, uh, who are tracking the number of casualties, on Tuesday afternoon, the death toll from COVID-19 in the United States stood at 600,012. Now, we're getting close to the official number, although obviously they weren't keeping records back in 1918 and 1919 quite that well, but I believe it was about 675,000 deaths, but on a per capita basis, that would mean probably millions of Americans would have had to die to match that number. So... What kind of a milestone does this appear to to you? Yeah, I mean, the, the 1918 comparisons are interesting. As you point out, uh, the population of the United States was, was only about 100 million people back then. So, um, you know, the comparisons on a per capita basis are, are uh, it's still, 1918 was still worse than what we've been going through now. And it, and it transpired in a shorter amount of time, which which means that we're really dealing with a, a different animal now. I mean, uh, um, you know, this is the second summer of where, in which we've been talking about COVID all the time. And in 1918, it was really the fall, the fall of 1918 was, was, was the big thing. And the summer of 1918, 
it hadn't really emerged fully yet. And in the summer of 1919, it was already gone. So, you know, we're, we're kind of in terra incognita here in, uh, in terms of, you know, comparisons to the 1918 epi uh, epidemic are, are really losing their, uh, their sharpness. So yes, yeah, it's, it's just, we're just in, we're in COVID. It's kind of its own, its own thing. And I mean, 600,000 Americans, it, it makes me, makes me sad. Uh, you know, some other countries have fared even, even worse. And, uh, some other countries have fared better and it's, and it's not over yet, particularly in the international stage. Comparisons are very difficult because, you know, we, we see some countries are still in the throes of their big waves. Well, of course, the U.S. does have the, the world's highest death toll, followed by Brazil, India, and Mexico, and the total global death toll stands at around 3.8 million. But the good news is that they're averaging about 375 deaths per day in the United States now, down from 3,000 per day in January. So clearly the vaccines are responsible for that, aren't they, Andrew? Well, uh, yeah, I, mean, I just want to clarify, the, the U.S. has the highest death toll in absolute numbers, but uh, on a per capita basis, there are a number of countries uh, that have fared uh, worse than, than, than we have. And, uh, and also that international comparisons are, are difficult. I mean, I, I believe um, the United States has actually done a pretty good job of, of counting COVID deaths, but the same um, cannot be said every, everywhere. So it, it, it's very uh, one has to be careful uh, making comparisons, but as far as the the reduction in deaths now, I, I mean it's 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 twofold. It's it's the it's the vaccine, as you as you pointed out in your question, and and we need to get vaccination rates you know even higher uh, than they already are, and also it's just the fact that we're coming off of uh, the winter wave and we're and we're emerging from the period of chaotic emergence of the COVID virus and 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 it's it's assuming a more seasonal pattern now so um you know respiratory viruses are, are tend to have seasonality like the flu virus where they're dominant in the winter and they're quiescent in the summer and and we're sort of we're sort of big, we, we didn't see that last summer because we were in this chaotic emergence period but uh now it's sort of uh becoming more like a regular respiratory virus. So it's, it's, it's going to be more lenient in the summer and more severe in the winter. And so, you know, COVID, the, the last word on COVID hasn't been written yet. And so, you know, I, I think we, uh, the vaccine is clearly our best weapon, but the reason for the reduction in deaths is the reduction in cases. And the reason for the reduction in cases is, is due really to two things, the vaccine and also the fact that it's, the COVID epidemiology is becoming more like a seasonal phenomenon now. So there is also a regional aspect to that. Only half of U.S. adults are fully immunized at this point. But in the South and in the Midwest, the vaccine rates are way lower than they are in the Northeast and the Northwest and parts of the West Coast. So is there a, a chance of us reaching what's been referred to as herd immunity or will we not reach that threshold? Well, that is a, a very important and interesting question. Um, so I'd like to see our vaccination rates in the United States much higher than, than around the 50% mark, which you note is, is where we're at. Um, 
And I, I am apprehensive about what will happen in the fall uh, with non-vaccinated uh, individuals. And particularly in regions, uh, you know, be it uh, California counties uh, where uh, vaccination rates are lower or states, as you point out, some of the states in the, in the south, east particularly are, are, um, are, you know, some of the laggard states. I'm, I'm worried about uh, having, you know, more COVID in, in, in those places. And herd immunity... Um, you know, re- refers to the fact that you don't need 100% uh, of the population to be vaccinated for for COVID to basically become a, a non-issue. Um, because when you have, you know, 75% of the population vaccinated or 80% of the population vaccinated, you, you don't get these continuous tra- uh, chains of transmission of the disease. And so... Um, you know, in places where vaccination rates are are forty percent, fifty percent, you you still will have epidemics. I mean, they they won't be as bad as before because you know fifty percent of the population is vaccinated, but but you still have the potential to have uh, you know an outbreak. So I, I am ex- looking very apprehensively at the fall and thinking that the states with the lower vaccination rates will. Uh, be ones that are experiencing a worse sort of, you know, second winter wave or, you know, second winter of, of COVID, so to, so to speak. So, yes, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, vaccination matters at the individual level and it matters at the population level as well. So what's the possibility of, of a, this new variant making things worse? The United States Center for Disease Control and Prevention is now calling the Delta variant a variant of concern, and the World Health Organization classified the Delta variant as a variant of concern on May the 10th. So then there's some studies out of Scotland that indicate that it will double the risk of hospitalization. So Delta is, is indeed concerning, and uh, Delta is, seems to spread faster than the other variant, which has been rechristened Beta, and either of them spread faster than the original you know, version of the virus. So, you know, Delta is concerning. And, it, you know, if and when Delta takes hold in the United States, it will, it will displace the strains, uh, you know, that are, are circulating uh, now in all likelihood. So, I mean, the good news is that there's also a study out yesterday showing that the vaccines have uh, around 88% effectiveness against Delta, which is a little bit lower than their effectiveness against the original virus, but still very good. And again, what we see is that when we do have cases of COVID among vaccinated individuals, that those cases are uh, milder. So I, I do, you know, think if, if the United States can keep pressing forward with uh, vaccination that we can, uh, in spite of Delta, you know, really get a, uh, the upper hand on COVID. But I'm worried that we're reaching a ceiling in some places on the number of people who, who want to get vaccinated. But as your listeners know, you know, this is not like February or March where you have to um, be on the right list or have the right occupation or have the right age or have to wake up at 3.30 to get on a pharmacy website. I mean, your listeners can get vaccinated by walking into a retail pharmacy or other uh, place where they normally get their flu shot or, or any other place where they normally receive health care. So the vaccines are available. We're in June now. We're, it's not February and March anymore. The vaccines are readily available. Anyone age 12 and up 
in the United States is authorized to be vaccinated. And so, um, so, you know, anyone who's sort of been hesitant, I, I would definitely recommend that they, that they get vaccinated as I am vaccinated. I would never recommend anything to your listeners to do that I wouldn't do myself and haven't done. But Dr. Fauci seems to be concerned about this new variant, and he said that we cannot let that happen. In other words, it's spreading here in the United States. And he went on to say that the Delta variant is such a powerful argument to get vaccinated. Is that working, do you think, given the numbers that we've been discussing? Well, I mean, I, I, I think Dr. Fauci is, is right. I mean, the Delta is concerning. I mean, uh, I mean, apart from the sort of return of the seasonal nature of the virus, the Delta variant is is the number one thing that I, that I worry about at, at, at this point. I mean, we are in a good place in terms of California and the United States. We're in a better place than we were in, in at the start of the calendar year. And you know, Delta is definitely the fly in the ointment, if you want to put it that way. And I mean, but as I said, vaccination uh, works even against Delta. So, um, you know, your listeners who are vaccinated uh, can, you know, feel optimistic that they are protected against um, against it. In fact, very optimistic. And, you know, uh, your listeners who who are you know not vaccinated yet. I, I would encourage them to, to get vaccinated. I mean, it's, it's going to be how we're going to prevent um, Delta from spreading. And, you know, the more we do that, the more, you know, we'll all be able to just continue to get back to normal, uh, you know, quote unquote normal. I mean, today's the day in, in California, where, uh, where, which is where we're taping this interview, that, that uh, basically the last of the COVID restrictions um, are lifted. So, you know, if, if people want to keep it that way, then vaccination is the uh, really the, the only way we're going to accomplish that. And there is a new uh, vaccine uh, made by Novavax, which is apparently 100% effective against the original strain of COVID-19 and 93% effective against other variants. So I guess that's good news, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's good news to have multiple um you know, supply chains of, of the vaccine. I mean, there's still, there's still work to be done in terms of reaching um, everyone and, uh, you know, uh, particularly, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm very happy about the, the, the new vaccine. And also, in, in due, you know, in due course, it's not just the United States that's going to need to be vaccinated, but the, uh, the whole world. I mean, I mean um, these strains emerge in places where COVID is being transmitted. We want, you know, every country to have you know 85 percent vaccine coverage or, or higher so um you know the more supply chains we have the more we can export the vaccines and you know that way it's in our own uh you know medium term self-interest to have everyone in the in the world vaccinated because it means that we won't be constantly talking about new strains being reintroduced to the united states i mean so absolutely so just in the last couple of minutes, Andrew Neumann, there is a phenomenon, of course, of the post-COVID phenomenon, which is a little troubling, and there's not a lot of research done, but there is some research that's coming out now uh, based on the health insurance records of nearly 2 million people in the US who got the coronavirus, and about one quarter, 23% of the people who've got infected and came down with 
COVID-19, they have gone in for medical treatment for all kinds of conditions, pain, nerves and muscle pain, breathing difficulties, high cholesterol, malaise, fatigue, high blood pressure and intestinal symptoms, migraines, skin problems, heart abnormalities, sleep disorders and mental health conditions like anxiety and depression. So there's obviously, it's not just trying to stop people from getting the thing, but it seems like we don't know a lot about what happens after you get it and recover or maybe you don't recover fully well i mean there's a, yeah there's there, there's definitely a lot of work to be done to understand you know what the right hand tail so to, as we would say uh looks like in terms of uh how long it takes for covid to completely resolve it's um you know some of those correlations are are spurious a lot of them may be real um and you know it's something that we're going to need to to work to understand you know, there's there's really no a follow-up study longer than a, than about 16 months because that's how long we've been dealing with COVID. So, you know, what does um, COVID post-COVID look like in uh, 36 months? Well, the answer could be everyone recovers, or the answer could be there's still these long-term problems. And the the right now nobody knows because there's no data because it's impossible to have any data 36 months out. So this is going to be something that we're going to have to continue to study. And I, I mean I can't think of a better endorsement for getting vaccinated than avoiding all these very long term problems. And uh, you know we're talking about you know well over 100 million people have been vaccinated in the United States. And so I you know I think if if we were going to see any major problems, in fact, I'm sure if we were going to see any major problems emerging as a result of the vaccine, that we would have seen them by now with, with over 100 million people vaccinated. And so, you know, I, I, I am vaccinated and, and um, I, I would really encourage your uh, listeners to, to get vaccinated themselves if, if, if they haven't already. And I, I don't like sort of wagging a finger at, at, at people who have been you know, cautious so far, I, I mean, I, I, uh, I just I want to encourage them sincerely to get vaccinated. You know, it's a, it's a great opportunity now where the uh, we're in the summer and it's a very lenient period in terms of transmission. It's a great opportunity now for us to get caught up. Whereas in the fall, uh, if COVID comes back, then everyone's going to be rushing to, again to pharmacies. So there's really no time like the present. Well, Andrew Norman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Always a pleasure to be on your show, Ian. Well, thank you, Andrew. And again, I've been speaking with Andrew Neumer, who's an epidemiologist and professor of population health and disease prevention at the University of California, Irvine. We're going to take a brief station break back assessing the White House's first national strategy to fight domestic terrorism unveiled today by the National Security Council. I don't give a damn what the doctors say. I ain't going to spend another lonesome day. Things 
the same because we lack the same color And that's gray, now that's man Can't burn his cross, cause he can't afford the gasoline Now if a Muslim woman's trapped with a bomb on the bus With the seconds running, give you the jitters Just imagine an American-based Christian organization Planning to poison water supplies to bring the second coming quicker Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Shanzer, a professor of public policy at the Duke Sanford School of Public Policy and the director of the Triangle Center on Terrorism and Homeland Security. Prior to Duke, Shanzer served as the Democratic Staff Director of the House Select Committee on Homeland Security, as well as in positions in the Department of Defense and the Department of Justice and the United States Senate. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Shanzer. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of the report that just came out, that was unveiled by the National Security Council, the White House's first national strategy to fight domestic terrorism? It looks as if they've gone to great lengths to appear to be or try to be, as they say, ideologically neutral. But do you think that it's going to work with the Republicans, given that they wouldn't even agree to a commission looking into what happened on January the 6th? Well, much of the strategy really doesn't depend on any new legislation. Uh, So this is really a blueprint for the administration itself for how it, you know, the strategies it wants to pursue to address this problem. I think it's, you know, very significant that they've identified uh, this as as an important priority. They've essentially put it on par with the threat from al-Qaeda, ISIS, and that form of terrorism. And, you know, I think they are correct to say that this is ideologically neutral. They reference uh, forms of uh, domestic terrorism that are not right-wing terrorism, and there indeed have been prosecutions uh, related to them uh, brought by the Biden administration. So I, I think it identifies an important problem and lays out, you know, a number of very sensible means for addressing it. Indeed, they, the report does talk about the shooting of five police officers in Dallas in 2016 and the gunman who wounded four people at a congressional baseball practice in 2016, including the number two Republican in the House. And, of course, January the 6th, which, unfortunately, seven out of ten Republicans think was essentially staged by Antifa, to make Trump look bad. So is this to say that we have to have bipartisanship in terms of going forward, or if this is the White House's strategy, can they go it alone, and what can they achieve on their own? Well, yes, there's a, there's a problem of uh, that the intelligence community, again, this is not a group of uh, political people, but uh, professionals in our intelligence community, Putting out an assessment back in March, uh, identifying you know two the two largest forms of uh, domestic extremism, uh, one being anti-government uh, militia-style uh, groups uh, who kill police officers uh, and and take other actions against law enforcement. Uh, that would seem to be something all uh, people who you know believe in our country you know should be able to get around stopping violence by, uh, and the racially motivated white supremacist uh, extremists, and 
you know, that is a, a historic uh, problem that both of parties have, have confronted over the course of history. But in the end, the Biden administration has identified, you know, these threats, and it's going to do what it has to do to protect the American people from these threats, uh, hopefully as early in the, in the radicalization process as possible, so that we don't have more victims as we did at the Capitol and as we have in many of the incidents in the report and, and the ones that you just uh, mentioned. So it's about stopping violence. And that ought to be something that, you know, uh, the vast majority of Americans can rally around. So they're really looking at what happens when political grievances morph into violence. Is that where the focus is? Well, that's right. And, uh, yeah, we have challenges that other countries don't have and that we have a very robust First Amendment, which is, you know, a very uh, unique and important part of the American uh, framework. Uh, you know, which the Biden administration says over and over again, uh, it respects and is going to, you know, develop its strategies in a context which free speech is, you know, vigorously protected, which means people have a right to say uh, what they want uh, and believe what they want, uh, and that's fine. Uh, what they don't have a right to do is engage in violence in furtherance of those ideas. And so there's the dividing line. And when you threaten uh, or take preparatory steps or plot with others uh, to engage in violence, to pursue some sort of political agenda, whether it's an agenda of anarchy on the left or white supremacy on the right, then you've crossed the line. Uh, and our you know, civil society has an obligation to develop ways to, to stop you. Uh, and the report is, you know, 32 pages uh, of different initiatives and ideas uh, about how to deal with this, uh, you know, very American and very, you know, deep problem right now. Well, the report makes it clear that domestic terrorism is the most urgent terrorist threat the United States faces today. So, again, who is the audience here for this? Well, I think the audience is that the president said that the when I mean president when he was candidate Biden, uh, vice president, said that the election was about a fight for the soul of America, and the the soul of America is uh, con to confront our history of white supremacy, is to create a more perfect union where all people can exercise their civil rights, civil liberties, and enjoy uh, a life free of, of uh, threat uh, to their well-being. And that's unfortunately not the America that, you know, we live in today. And it's not the vision of America that, frankly, uh, promoted by uh, the prior administration. So, no, it's, uh, I think it was a vital promise that we are going to Go after this threat uh, hard. The same thing with organized militia groups that believe that they can use force again and, and they have more legitimacy to use force than the police who, you know, they see them as illegitimate, you know, and that our government, the government by the people for the people is a, a tool of oppression and they want to use violence to, to, to weaken it and, and possibly, as, as we saw on January 6th, take steps to overthrow it. Uh, so, yeah, those things are, are an important part of what President Biden promised in his campaign to you know, cr 
create a different kind of America than the prior administration did, uh, one that is consistent with our traditional values, and and reestablish what he he believes the soul of America is. So, um, absolutely, very important steps. So, you mentioned uh, Biden's campaign pledge for the soul of America. He made it really clear that Charlottesville was the incident that really got to him and made him feel that he had to run for the presidency. And apparently on the first day in the Oval Office is when he initiated this report, right, this this strategy study. Is that your understanding? Well, yes, he gave a number of uh, directives. Uh, one was to tell the intelligence community that he wanted a you know, robust assessment. Uh, that came out in March. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security also took a deep dive into the into this particular threat. Uh, that that study has been issued, so it started very quickly right from the beginning of the administration, and then you take the assessments of the threat, and that's how you build out a strategy to confront that threat. And that's a document that we've uh, seen come out uh, over the last twenty four hours. So. Apparently, the document doesn't find a connection between domestic terrorism and foreign actors. Is that right? Well, it it identifies that this problem does have multinational, global aspects to it. There are there is certainly an international movement of you know, white supremacists, especially the militias, are really more uniquely American. But uh, there is certainly multinational white supremacist organizations, and it, it, it instructs the agencies to essentially be on the lookout uh, much more carefully for these groups and to sh- uh, trying to work together and infiltrate the United States and work together with actors in the U.S. But it believes, the administration believes at present, uh, that this is more of an inside-out rather than an outside-in. Uh, problem that um, most of the violence and the threats of violence that that we're worried about are coming from within the U.S. Uh, and not from uh, outside agitators. That you know, with the, with the understanding that there are international organizations, and we have to be on the lookout uh, for those types of connections, so we can snuff them out and and take steps against them as well. Well, of course. President Biden will be meeting tomorrow with President Putin, and Putin, is, of course, is all about whataboutism. You know, we may be corrupt, but you're corrupt too. I may be a killer, but you guys kill too. And he's taking the position, apparently, that if Biden in any way criticizes him on human rights and talks about Navalny, he's going to talk about... How- you can listen to the rest of Ian Masters on background briefing on our HD3 channel, WMNF.org, HD3 The Source. Coming up next after NPR News is Midpoint, Janet is here, and she's going to give, and she'll have some live guests 